Good morning, church. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Are you going to be glad today? All right. Well, that's good. And uh, tomorrow is a special day. It's Labor Day, isn't it? So we're all going to enjoy today and tomorrow. And then it's back to work again on Tuesday. And uh, but anyway, I see a lot of our people are, are enjoying this weekend. I trust that, uh, that uh, come next week, uh, we'll have a, a full house and a wonderful day of worship again. Uh, there's a lot of activities going to be happening. Please uh, connect with the calendars that you have, hopefully you have, and uh, we want to take advantage of those things. And You know, Drew was talking about uh, biscuits and gravy. Drew, I had biscuits and gravy in about 1978. And uh, any biscuits and gravy that are scheduled, have my name on it, you can have them. Uh, I, I don't do biscuits and gravy. I don't do much soup at all and do not do stew. And uh, most vegetables. <laughs> but anything else I really like. <laughs> Uh, this is, uh, no, I'm just kidding, but uh, I'm, I'm excited about that men's breakfast, and uh, if, if nothing else, just be with a bunch of guys and uh, have some good food. That would be great. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to talk about the church at Pergamum. Uh, some Bibles have the church of Pergamus, uh, Pergamum, Pergamus, uh, you say tomato, I say tomato, but Uh, church of Pergamum beginning at verse 12 and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my witness my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept Balak, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Let's pray. Father, may we learn concerning your word, concerning what's written to this church at Pergamum. We ask, Father, that as we learn, that we will also carry that in our hearts, that we will apply its truths in our lives, Lord, that as we uh, step out into this very secularized world, Father, that we will do so with the name of Christ inscribed in our hearts and our minds. Now, Lord, grant to us uh, to be Uh, both uh, uh, hearers and doers of your word in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, 
Verse 1 reads, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. You know, you don't have to look very far in the scripture to find a similar verse. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, we read, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God knows you. God knows where you live. God knows your address. He knows your bank account number. He knows your social security number. He knows your cell phone number. He knows your email address. He knows all there is to know about you. And more than that, he knows what's in your heart and he knows what is in your mind. That there is nothing that we do say or think that he is not fully aware of. Our God knows you. And when our God speaks to you, he speaks to you in such a way that you are able to understand in, in your, with, with, with whatever uh, cognizant ability you have. You understand in your way because you know that that is God speaking to you. And perhaps as you're here today, that at the close of the service, God might be speaking to some of you very directly and, and wanting you to, to act upon what you have heard. God knows who you are. Just as God knows about these churches that we've been studying up with the past couple of weeks. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He is the gospel, the good news for humanity. It is the Word that is preached. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our need for Christ. He judges us uh, and, and as as being sinful people, the Bible says that he convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he judges the child of God of sins to be repented of and to bring the person back into fellowship with God. There may be some of you out here this, this morning who are somehow separate from God. And you feel upset at God. You feel mad at God. And, and uh, God has not answered the prayer that way, the way you wanted God to answer prayer. Or maybe you're upset about God because he didn't give you what you prayed for, that you thought you should have something that, that you were entitled to. And God has not given that to you. That needs to be repented of. God brings his children to Repentance. But as Jesus Christ is also described in, in Revelation 1.16 as having a two-edged sword emanating from his mouth. That is not just a real sword emanating from his mouth, but that sword that emanates from his mouth is the word of God itself. The sword, the word of God cannot be avoided, cannot be evaded, cannot be eliminated. Psalm 118.89 uh, says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. When it is spoken, it accomplishes the very purpose for which it has been ordained. That God ordains His Word. God sends out His Word and He works with people individually. He does not work with people in a, in a mass. He works with you individually. Perhaps He may be speaking to someone here today. Individually, uniquely, particularly. 
Isaiah 55, 11 says, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not, listen, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I have sent it. God is going to do a work in your life. God's going to do a work in this church Not because it is this church that is doing it. He's going to do it because it is God who is doing it. We simply become the instrument, the tool that God uses to bring forth His desired will. When God establishes a decreed perfect will, nothing on this earth, nothing under this earth, nothing around this earth, nothing that's created, nothing that exists is able to thwart that which God has planned and purposed. And that includes the Hazelwood Baptist Church. That God will accomplish in this church all that he wants to accomplish. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's how it works. We simply are the toolbox that God uses to do what God wants to do. So we need to make ourselves available to God. But let's talk about the church at Pergamum. In the church at Pergamum, there were those who were faithful followers of Jesus. Even to the point of death, they chose rather to give of their life's blood than to deny the profession, their profession and confession of Jesus Christ as their Savior. Pergamum had a temple erected for the worship of Caesar. But it also had a temple of Asclepius. Anybody know who Asclepius was? You don't find many of those temples around anymore. But uh, have you ever seen in medical profession the little caduceus that they wear on a sleeve or a chest or something? A little stick with a snake wrapped around it. And that's uh, symbolic of Asclepius. The temple was a massive building with uh, a whole mess of snakes inside of it. And if a person was sick, Uh, they would go into this temple at night and lay on the floor uh, with the intent, with the desire that a snake would slither over whatever part of their body was ailing. And they believed that that would heal them. Uh, That would probably heal me permanently. (laughs) I'd probably never feel any more pain after that. Be a massive heart attack right there. (laughs) Uh, But it also had other temples. It had temples for Athena, Zeus, and Dionysius. Dionysius was the god of drunkenness. Needless to say, needless to say, Pergamum was built upon a pagan culture. And in the midst of this pagan culture was this church. In spite of the faithfulness, it is apparent that when we come to verse 14 of our text, we find a note of condemnation levied against the church at Pergamum. And it says, it says in verse 14, I have a few things, I have a, listen, I have a few things against you. Now, you know there's no such thing as a perfect church. But if you don't find, but don't you find it somewhat odd that in the church at Ephesus, we talked about the first week, in the church at Ephesus, there's only one thing that God had against it, that they've left the first love. 
In the second week, we looked at the church at Smyrna. And in the church of Smyrna, there was no condemnation levied against the church at Smyrna. God was very satisfied with that church. Even as poor as it was, God was very satisfied with that church. But we come to the third church, the church at Pergamum. And God says, I have a few things against you. Not, not one, but I have a few things against you. I wonder this, what would our Lord say about us? What would he say about our church? What words of commendation would he give? What words of correction and condemnation would he give? I, I don't want us to just stop here and, and give it a whole bunch of thought that it, it consumes the rest of our time. But I think it is least worth some of our consideration for just a bit. So let's look at what the Lord says to the church at Pergamum. We are told in, in verses 14 and 15 that there were those in the church who held to the teachings of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. I don't know what you know about Balaam and the Nicolaitans, but I'm going to share a couple of things with you. First of all, let's deal with the Nicolaitans. What was the teaching of the Nicolaitans? The word Nicolaitan comes from two Greek words. Nike, which does not mean sneaker. <laughs> Nike, which means victory or to conquer. And the word laos or laos, which means people. It's where we get our English word laity. Clergy, laity. Laity, clergy. There was a problem with this clergy-laity situation in the church. This word Nicolaitan means victory over the people or to conquer the people. And evidently, there was a teaching in the church that the clergy was superior to the people. You know, there is the best of us and there's the rest of us. When you think of clergy, you think of a shepherd, don't you? Hopefully you will. And the shepherd walks in front of the sheep. And there is a rod and staff in his hand to protect and guide and give direction to the sheep. And to Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep, care for my sheep, feed my sheep. That is what the clergy is supposed to do. But sometimes the clergy, because they get swelled heads or whatever happens... Uh, they run behind the sheep, and rather than being the shepherd, they become the butcher. And they drive them into a place where they will fleece and slaughter the sheep. You will find this especially true in several hundred years ago in the dark ages of this world, when the... Uh, the only, only the clergy were permitted to have and interpret the scripture. 
Aren't you glad that you have one of these? And you can read it in a language that you can understand? Every one of you should have at least one of these in your home. There are some countries you can't have this. This is forbidden. I have about 20 of these in my library at home. Uh, some of them are so battered and beaten, they just, uh, because I've used them so much, but they're very precious to me. This is the Word of God. This is on which you stand. You're, you're not to deny it or doubt it. You are, you are not to, to be critical of its content and to say, well, this means this, but, you know, really, we don't do that anymore because we're too advanced. You know, this is 2021, not uh, 1521. Folks, this is not 2021 or 1521. This is 2,000 years old and more, probably 3,500 years old from the beginning to the end. From 3,500 years ago to 2,000 years ago, this was written. Forty different authors over 1,500 years of history is recorded in here. But all of this is God's Word. It is to be believed. It stands above everything else. Above everything else. There was also a teaching of Balaam. This teaching was built on subtlety. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter writing says this, The devil prowls about like a roaring lion. That means Satan is going out in a subtle way to destroy the church. Jesus says concerning Satan, The thief comes but only to steal and kill and to destroy. That's what he wants to do with you. That's what he would like to do with you, to steal and to kill and destroy. However, Satan could not destroy the church of Pergamum. You know why Satan cannot destroy a church? Because Jesus says, I will build my church and even the gates of hell cannot overpower it. But Satan wants to destroy you to destroy your testimony, to destroy who you are as a person. But he could not destroy the church of Pergamum. He tried to use persecution, and that didn't seem to work. So he became like a serpent, like he was at the Garden of Eden. Like the treacherous plan of Balaam, when he convinced Balak of Moab, the king, the leader of Moab, to join with Israel. Let me, let me give you some background. This Balak, the big man, the, the, you know, the BMOC at, of Moab, the big man on campus at Moab, goes and he calls this prophet of God named Balaam. And he says, he sees two million plus Jewish people coming across the wilderness and coming close to his land. And he, and he, and he, goes, to, and he goes to Balaam, this prophet of God. He says, would you come and would you curse these people for me? 
God's prophet is going to curse God's people. So Balaam goes and he looks and he overlooks from, from one hillside and sees two million plus Jewish people uh, coming across the wilderness. And he, he says, I can't curse them because God has not given me the word to curse them. So Balak takes them to another hillside. He said, maybe from here, you can take a look at them. And he sees all these Jewish people. And he says, you know, God says that I cannot curse them. He takes them to the third hillside. And he says, I can't curse them. And Balak says, well, what good are you? He says, I will give you wealth and riches. You'll be the wealthiest man in the land. I'll give you so much. All you got to do is just curse these people for me. You know, it's a lot of temptation out there. So here's what Balaam does. He doesn't curse them. But he tells Balak, the head of Moab, the king of Moab. He tells him how to destroy them. He says, get your women and get them all spruced up. And have them go down and visit with the guys of Israel and seduce them. And that's what they did. They introduced sexual immorality to Israel. The yoke between Moab and Israel was established, a yoke that should never existed, became real. The church today, anyway, just let me go back to this. Through the teaching of Balaam, it embraced the false god of sexual immorality of the Moabites and the Midianites to Israel. They introduced immorality. But in the church today, we must guard ourselves against a similar teaching. As unpleasant as this may sound in our highly educated and sophisticated culture, I find it more than common that we, in some degree, have fallen victim to the subtleness of Satan, just like Israel did through Balaam and Balak. So oftentimes we have too. First, may I remind you of what the scripture clearly teaches in regard to a biblical marriage. In first in Second Corinthians six fourteen, Paul says speaks of being unequally yoked. And although the primary meaning addresses allying oneself in any venture with an unbeliever, that we are a household of faith. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's spiritually adopted people. You are the the spiritual Israel, the chosen ones of God. We should not ally ourselves in some venture where we put the Christian and the unchristian together in some venture. We should, as a household of faith, be equally yoked with one another. But more so in the sense, also in the sense of 
of the marital union. A Christian with a non-Christian does not work. And what generally but not always occurs in such instances, when you have a a Christian marrying a non-Christian, not always, but generally speaking, is that the Christian's conduct and spiritual direction is led astray by the influences of the non-Christian. That's how it generally works. When I hear people say, well, some young lady will say, well, pastor, uh, I'm I'm hoping to change him. Let Let me know how that works out for you. That generally does not work out that way. It just doesn't. Second, the church in the past and current generation has and is being plagued by unmarried cohabitation. The bed upon which a couple shares should be that of a man and women who've been united in marriage. The Bible makes this very clear in Genesis 2.24 Listen to what, script, what God's Word has to say. Not what I'm saying, but what God's Word has to say. For this reason, 2.24 of Genesis, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and listen to this, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And just in case there may be some doubt as to who husband and wife are, in the matter of gender, we read in Genesis 1, 27, 28, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now listen, God's word, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. I'd like to see how that works in any other way. There are but two genders. And if you're uncertain as to what you are, Look yourself in the mirror in your birthday suit. And you'll be able to tell if you're an X or a Y. A male or a female. Because that union between man and woman, husband and wife, does what God wants humanity to do. To be fruitful and multiply. It is done by a husband and a wife. As we continue in our text in Revelation, we come to verse 16 where we read, Therefore, repent. Let's say that we messed up. Isn't it wonderful that God gives us a way out? Repentance. You know, we criticize people because they say, oh, you're not acting Christian. Well, if they're not a Christian, they're not going to act Christian. If we're living in sin, it's because if we're Christian living in sin, my friend, you need to repent. Get right with God. Get it straight with God. It doesn't take a rocket surgeon to figure this out. Repentance is the avenue of escape that God gives His people which allows us to get back into proper fellowship with Him. Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved unto repentance. Grieved unto repentance. So, what does repentance involve? The most concise answer is that involves the mind, 
the will and the emotions. You know those three things, don't you? We all have them. Mind, will, and emotions. It involves the mind in that it mentally defines sin as that which is morally and spiritually wrong. Let me give you a real, real concise but accurate descriptive of what sin is. When people say, well, what is sin? Some say, well, it's missing the mark. Some say it's veering off the path. Well, let me give you something that just really, just really goes out right down to the nitty gritty. Sin in its, in its most basic, in the most basic sense, sin robs God of the glory that is due him. When you and I sin, and we all do, and we do every day, don't tell me that been, it's been six months since you last sinned. It might be six seconds ago, but <laughs> not six months. But listen, when you sin, when you sin, you are robbing God. Just like Malachi talks about, he says, will a man rob God? We robbed God not just in a sense of our tithes and offerings at times, but we robbed God when we sin because that sin that you and I commit rips away from God what glory He should be receiving. That the glory He should be receiving is the action that we do ought to be an action that prompts another person to see Christ in us who's the hope of glory. When we sin, that, that visual of Christ in us, the hope of glory, is gone. So we're robbing God. Sin robs God. It involves the will in that it allows or causes the person to renounce sin and forsake it. It involves the emotions in that it gives a heartfelt approval as to what the Bible says regarding sin. The church at Pergamum was told to repent. I believe that that same command is given to every church across this land as well as this church. We need to be a people, as Christ describes, who have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. Jesus, in John 10, 27, says this. He says, My sheep hear my voice I know them, and they follow me. My sheep, listen very carefully. It's God's word, not mine. It's God's God's word. My sheep, my sheep, my church, they hear my voice. How do we hear God's voice? We hear it through this. My sheep, in essence, know my word. They're obedient to my word. And when you're obedient to God's word, what will you do? You will follow him. What we often do is we say that we know God's word, but we go in our own direction. Not only as an individual, but sometimes even when we meet together as a church and we vote on certain things. That we say that we want to vote what we want to vote We do not have the right to vote what we want to vote. Our right consists of this, that we vote the way God directs us to vote. 
My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Not follow one another, but they follow me. Friends, are you in tune with the voice of our shepherd? Or, or are you so bombarded with worldly voices that it has become difficult for you to make godly choices? <clears throat> the issue that we face today, or that any generation, the issue that we face is not between making right or wrong decisions. I mentioned to the earlier group, if there is a bucket of cotton candy, a large five-gallon bucket of cotton candy here, that I could put my hand in and grab it and eat it. I don't know why I would, but if I did that. Or on the other hand, if there was a bucket of hot briquette coals over here, which would I rather put my hand into? Well, if I'm thinking in any normal way, I would probably say, well, I'd rather go where the cotton candy is at. Or if I'm Drew, where the biscuits and gravy are at. And I'll go in there and grab it. But if I'm not thinking straight, I'll put my hand in a hot fire. And be foolish. No, that makes sense to you, doesn't it? That's a good choice. Putting my hand in a cotton candy is a good choice. Life is not like that all the time, though, is that? Satan's scheme, Satan's scheme is to cause us as Christians to feel like we are making the right choices in our lives. Satan wants us to think that we're making right choices. Oh, I'll go where the cotton candy is at. That's a good choice. Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember Eve in the Garden of Eden? She looks at this forbidden tree, the forbidden fruit. I don't know what kind of fruit it was. They could have had watermelon growing off trees back then. I have no idea. But we're not going to surmise on what that fruit was. It was, God says, don't eat it. That's what it was. But in the Garden of Eden, Satan causes her to believe that she was doing good. Satan wants us to believe that we are doing good, that we're being good, and we're making good decisions. He deceives us into doing what we think is good, and all the while, we're not doing, not that we're not doing what's good, because we will probably do what is good, and he's okay with us doing what's good. But he doesn't want us to do what is of God. And there's a difference. We're replacing God with what we believe to be good. Let me give you an example from Scripture. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food... It was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. Those are all good choices. It looks good. Boy, it makes me happy to look at it. And I think I'll be smart for taking this. Those are good choices. 
but they were all wrong choices. They were wrong. The church at Pergamum thought that they were doing good with the choices they were making. After all, they were autonomous, weren't they? They have the right to do church the way they want to, don't they? The Lord tells them in verse 16, I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. That is, my word will stand against them, convict them, reprove them, rebuke them, and judge them. Folks, we are to be the church that refuses to tolerate anything that delegitimizes the word of God. Whether that be something that is mandated by government, by ecclesiastical authority, or personal opinion, God's word must be seen as inviolate. And I was told this, that I need to tell you what inviolate means. It does not mean that I do not like violets. The word inviolate means to keep sacred. God's word must be kept sacred. Absolute truth. Absolute truth without any mixture of error. Where do you stand today? By the promise of God's own word and by faith, do you know for certain? Do you know for certain, as a human being, do you know for certain that your life is yielded over to God? Where do you stand? Is your life totally yielded over to God? There's all kinds of temptations out there. There are, there are Nicolaitans and there are Balaams out there all over this world and wanting to to transform you, to conform you rather, into their image. Not into the image of God, but into the image that they want to portray. And there's all these forces out there trying to get you to follow them because they'll make things look good. They'll make them look pretty. Make you think you're making wise and right choices. But folks, the scripture says, be sure to know your sin will find you out. Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus Christ. Virgin born. Perfect in every way. Crucified for our sins. Bearing God's wrath. Buried, resurrected on the third day. Is your only hope of salvation. And it's to him you must cling. Not to what the world says. Not to what the world teaches. But what scripture teaches, this is absolute truth. No one, Jesus, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. Didn't he say that? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. My friend, do you believe that? Or you fall for some teaching that opposes that. What will you do with this information today? Will you trust your life over to Jesus Christ? Or will you, because it looks good for you, will you go your own way and feel that, well, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a delightful person. I'm a wise person. I'm well-read. I'm well-educated. I can make my own choices. I'll determine what's good for me. 
just like Eve did. I'll determine. I'll determine what's right and what's wrong. That's, that's what it was all about, wasn't it? He said, make you wise. You'll know good from evil. Oh, I can determine what's right and what's wrong. We become an autonomous person. Isn't that a shame that we say we can be autonomous? Autonomous? You know what autonomous is? That I, I can I depend on nobody but myself. I don't want to be autonomous. I want to be fully dependent upon God. I cannot put my trust in myself, nor can I put my trust in you. I do not put my trust in the church, nor do I put my trust in my denomination. I put my trust in God. Where will you put your trust today? Will you yield your life over to Jesus Christ? As the Spirit of God is speaking with you today, let me tell you what God's Word says. We're going to close with this. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 says this. He says, Behold, now, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now, now is the day of your salvation. Now. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not five minutes before you die. But right now. Will you give your life over to Jesus Christ? Quit making decisions for yourself that you think are just blessing yourself. Will you give your life over to Christ and let him be your guide?